We are going to cover the entire chapter of Matthew 25 tonight. Uh, and people think, well, that's an awful lot to cover. Well, it's really not. It's a couple of parables and then some end time stuff. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we started in Matthew chapter 24. I told you this area of scripture is known as the Olivet Discourse. Jesus is sitting on the Mount of Olives. He's looking across the Kidron Valley. He's talking to his disciples. They had a question. They came to him and they said, hey, tell us when will these things be? When and what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? In other words, he had told them about the temple, not one stone being left upon another. And he goes, hey, it's not going to, they assumed in their mind if the temple's being knocked down, it must be the end of all things. So when is all this going to happen? Can you tell us what to look for? So he told them about the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel. He spoke of the great tribulation. He talked about the coming of the son of man. He spoke about the parable of the fig tree and he told them specifically, no one knows the day or the hour, not even the angels. As he closed out chapter 24, if you remember, he told the story of a faithful servant and an evil servant. The moral of the story is the faithful servant was ready for the return of the master. The evil servant was not ready. He anticipated, he anticipated ah, he's not coming back. Forget about it. He, he, he said he's coming back. It's, we have plenty of time. And what did he do? He became violent towards his fellow servants. He actually became a drunkard and began drinking with them. He was not busy doing the work of his master. Instead, he was busy uh, taking in the things of the world. The clear understanding is that Christians, that's us, followers of Jesus Christ, we are to be faithful servants. We are to live with the expectation of the return of Jesus Christ. And now as we come into chapter 25, he's continuing with that same line of thinking, that same thought of him coming back. Chapter 25 is divided into three parts. The first one is the parable of the wise and foolish virgins or bridesmaids. The second one is the parable of the talents. And the third part is the son of man, we'll see the son of man judging the nations. So let's jump right into Matthew chapter 25 verse 1 and look at the wise and foolish bridesmaids there. Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and they went out to meet the bridegroom. Remember, Jesus had just told the disciples to be ready. He talked about the faithful servant. Be ready like that faithful servant. Now he begins to illustrate the kingdom of heaven to them. To completely understand this, we must realize that they're, they're, they're calling them virgins. They're, we're going to see them called bridesmaids. So he's using an illustration of a Jewish wedding. That he's talking about a Jewish wedding. And in a Jewish wedding or a Jewish marriage, there was three main parts. The first part being the engagement. It was an arranged marriage. It was an agreement by the fathers of both the bride and the groom. It was sort of an arranged marriage. The second part was a betrothal, the ceremony uh, where they exchanged a mutual promise. They shared a glass of wine. During this time, during this betrothal period, that's where Mary and Joseph were, remember? He was, Mary was betrothed to be married to Joseph. They were they're considered legally married. But during this time, the bridegroom, the man, would go back to his father's house. He would prepare a place for his bride. Usually it was a room off of his father's house where they would live together once the ceremony was completed. It usually took about a year. Then when the father declared the time to be right, the bridegroom would come for his bride. The bride would not know when he was coming, but she had the duty of being prepared and waiting and being ready at, at a moment's notice. How would you like that as a bride? Most brides, it takes a lot of time to get ready, at least a full day, but planning a wedding can be a lot. She had to be ready at a moment's notice. When the bridegroom would come, her bridesmaids, 
would meet him on his way there. They would have lamps lit or more like torches lit. They would accompany him to the bride's home where he would collect his bride and then proceed back to his father's house to the room that he had built for them. At this time, the marriage ceremony would begin, last for usually seven days. Now, there's some beautiful pictures in there about Christ, about the church being the bride of Christ, about the church, about Christ coming for his church, the rapture of the church. The seven days is similar or symbolic of the seven years of tribulation. There's a lot of parallels there, and it's a beautiful situation, and we're waiting to attend the wedding supper of the Lamb, which would be a picture of the wedding feast that was lasting for that seven days. At this part in the parable, though, that's before us, the bridegroom is coming and the bridemaids are coming out to meet him. So here comes the bridegroom. You can imagine here comes the husband and the bridesmaids are gathering. They're coming out to meet him. Look at verse two with me. Now, five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But the but while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. Let me just remind you of something. This is a parable. It's an earthly story meant to teach a heavenly truth. This is an area of scripture that is highly debated about among Christians. We must be careful not to create doctrine on minor details of a parable or of an earthly story. Instead, we need to understand the overall meaning. Keep the big picture in focus, if you will. Many people, when it comes to this parable, they want to place emphasis on the virgins. They want to look at the number 10. Yes, it's the number of completion, but it was also the number that were of bridesmaids that were in the average Jewish wedding feast. It was just a number of 10. They want, they want to dig into all these little details and they forget, wait a minute, this is a parable. He's, he's telling, a parable is usually going to tell us one main picture, one main story there. And they, they want to talk about, you know, well, there was five and five. Is that a 50-50 split? How, how, is the, how does it go? Don't get lost in the minor details. Keep the big picture in focus. But what is important in this parable is the fact that half or five of them were prepared and five of the, them were foolish or unprepared. Five were ready, five weren't. For whatever reason, the bridegroom had delayed his coming and half of them, five of the bridesmaids, five of the virgins were not ready for him to come. They all slept, all ten were sleeping there at verse 6, and at midnight a cry was heard, behold the bridegroom is coming, go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, no, lest there should not be enough for us and you, but go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Although all ten of them were asleep, five were prepared to act when called upon, and five were not. These, as I said before, were, were not really oil-burning lamps. They were more like torches. It would be a long stick of wood with a rag wrapped around the end. It would be soaked in oil, and they would have extra oil. So when that oil would start to go out, then they would be able to add more oil to that stick or to that rag or to that torch with not enough oil their oil was running around because their, their lamp was lit but it kept going out with not enough oil the virgins asked hey can we have some of yours you, you've got some extra there can we have some and they said no that's not enough we might need ours we're not going to give it to you go get your own you can go buy your own so the five foolish bridesmaids they left to get some more oil when they returned what had happened a door to the wedding was shut they weren't allowed inside. They had missed the procession, and the door was closed. Look what happens to them in verse 11. Afterward, 
The other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. Because these foolish bridesmaids were not prepared, they were excluded from the wedding feast. The simple, clearest understanding of this parable is as Christians, we must be prepared for the return of Jesus Christ. For when it will happen, we do not know. But we do know it's probably going to happen when we least expect it. He will come for his bride, and you don't want to be found unprepared. All ten thought they were going into the wedding. Now, this, when you start digging into these details, you always wonder, wait a minute, this is focusing on the bridesmaids, what about the bride? And, then, and people begin to kind of look at, and they begin to look at this in some of these minor details. They try to, they try to form some theological doctrine off it. I don't think it's really meant to do that. I think it's meant to say, hey, be prepared. There's a wise servant and a foolish servant. There's a prepared bridesmaid and an unprepared bridesmaid. Be prepared for the coming of the Lord. It also indicates there's some people who think they're prepared. They thought they were ready, but then they realized at the moment of his coming, they were not ready. I think that's speaking of church, of the church, of people, Christians. I think there's many people who think, I'm ready for the Lord. But the moment he shows up, you might find something different. You might find that you're not prepared. Let me again say this is a highly debated area of Scripture. Bible scholars land on different sides of what all of this means. Let me tell you where sometimes the most confusion comes in. Some people focus on the oil. And we know through Bible study that oil is always, or not always, but most of the time, a picture of the Holy Spirit. It's a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And some would even say that if you're not a spirit-filled believer, then you're, a, you're the foolish bridesmaid, and you'll be left behind when Jesus comes for his bride. They liken it, they tie it to somehow a baptism of the Holy Spirit, and if you don't have the Holy Spirit, then you will, you will not be prepared and therefore left behind. Another group say, well, everybody that believes in Jesus Christ has the Holy Spirit indwelling them, which is absolutely true. That happens at salvation, so the groups are divided by those who are really saved and those who just think they're saved, that some people have the Holy Spirit, they don't, others think they have it, but they really don't have it, they think they're saved, but they're not really saved, and it gets kind of confusing back and forth. Again, don't lose sight of the big picture. The big picture is half of them were prepared, half of them were unprepared. The second problem is you can't go and purchase the Holy Spirit like they're told to. We'll go out and buy some. Well, I can't go purchase the Holy Spirit. If you want to study this more, I would encourage it. If you're interested, feel free. Take a Bible college class. It's something that, you know, if, if you were to go to seminary, they're going to write papers on it, and you can debate and find your position and figure it all out there. It's, a, it's great. But for our, for our study of it tonight, suffice it to say, half were ready, half weren't. The half that wasn't ready thought they were ready, but yet they were locked out because they were not prepared. There was two groups of people. One was ready for the return of Christ. The other was not. The simple question is, which group are you in? Are you ready if it happens tonight? Are you ready for the return of Jesus Christ? Or are you not? That's, that's the simple. Well, how do I know if I'm ready? Are you a follower of Jesus Christ? Well, how, how do I know if I'm a follower? Well, that's the next parable is going to tell us that. You're going to be able to find that out in the, next, in the next section. Both groups thought they were ready, but only truly one was. If Jesus is telling them to be ready, he told them, wise servant, foolish servant. There's a prepared bridesmaid, an unprepared bridesmaid. What does being ready look like? That's what he's going to talk to you about in the next parable. 
It all ties together. The next parable is the parable of the talents. This is what it looks like to be ready as you're waiting on the return of Jesus Christ. It goes in order like this for a reason, I think. It makes it perfectly clear. He's telling them how to be ready and what being ready looks like. Look at verse 14. For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his own ability. And immediately he went on a journey. Then he who had received the five talents went and he traded with them. And he made another five talents. And likewise he who had received the two gained two more also. But he who had received one went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. After a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. So a man's traveling away. It was common. He's got to do something with his money. He's going to leave it to his faithful servants, and he leaves different amounts to different people. A talent, speaking his money, is speaking of his wealth. Between, he's dividing it up between his servants. He called them, gave each of them a certain amount. One he gave five, one he gave two, and another he just gave one. Now, in our culture, you hear the word talent. What do we, and I've heard this passage taught in many ways. What do we think of as our talent? We think of it as our, it's our skill. It's what we're good at. You know, it's, it's our, our talent. Are you, you're, you're talented at something. So we think of that being the talent. But that's not really the correct definition of a talent here biblically. A talent was a measure of weight. It's like a kilogram or a pound or a ton. You have a certain talent, a certain weight of a certain thing, and the, whatever that thing that you're weighing would determine the value of the talent. A, a talent of gold would be worth more than a talent of, say, iron or copper or something else. So the, the, the gold would be the most valuable talent. So that's, that's what you're looking at here as a, as, a, as, a, as a measurement of weight. Generally speaking, financially, a talent would be regarded as about 6,000 denarii. So you can do the math, a denarii was a day's wage, any quick mathematicians, you take 6,000, you divide it by 365, you get roughly 16 years. So what you need to know from this is the talent is a large sum of money. It's a lot of money. It's, it's roughly 16 years wages. So if you were to go out and work for the next 16 years, that's the average wage. That's, that's the approximate value of a talent. Again, that's going to depend on what the, what the talent is and what, 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 what item is in there. In the application of this parable, I do think it's appropriate to look as a talent as an equivalent to our life's resources. I mean, we've been given certain things. We've been given a talent of time. We've been given talents of abilities. We've been given talent financially, even authority. But here, he's in the parable, he's specifically referring to money. And it's not wrong to say, well, you know, you have a certain measure of time that you've been given in your life. And what are you going to do with it? You have a certain amount of money that you're going to be given or earn or make or however you want to say it. It's going to come across your, in your bank account throughout your life. What are you going to do with it? I mean, there's a certain amount of those things. You have a certain amount of authority that you've been given in your life. What are you going to do with it? But here in our parable, he's really talking about finances. He's talking about the money. And I want you to notice something there. The servants were given different amounts of money. But did you notice what it was based on? It says it was based on their own ability their own ability. They all received what they were able to handle, what they could handle, what was, what was right for them. Each life is different, and what is sufficient for one person may not be sufficient for another. Some, some may be wealthy, some may not be wealthy. Or what is too much for one person may not be too much for another. One commentator I like to read, his name is Adam Clark, he explained it this way. 
He said, the talent which each man has suits his own state best. And listen to this. It is only pride and insanity which would lead him to desire and envy the graces and talents of another. Five talents would be too much for some men. One talent would be too little. So the Lord has given based on the person's, based on the servant's ability. I'm going to give you, I already know your ability. I'm going to provide something for you. The first two servants doubled their talents from five to 10, from two to four. The third servant, what did he do with his talents? Went out in the backyard and he dug a hole, put it in a mayonnaise jar, stuck it in the backyard, dig it up later. That's what he did with the Lord's money. He hid it. The first two scriptures said went and traded their talents. And that language there implies they went and they did it without delay and with consistency. It wasn't a one-time transaction. It wasn't a, they didn't go bet, it, bet the farm on, 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 a, on a game of cards. It wasn't something, it was we continually and consistently traded our talent. We, we, we continually, consistently brought, that, brought money in from what we had. Perhaps they loaned the money at interest. Perhaps they used the money and bought things and sold them at a higher price. Perhaps they, they, they however, whatever they did, maybe they were, maybe they, whatever they did with it. The point is they used what they had to gain more uh, by using it. They didn't just bury it. After a while, the master came back. He comes back. Look at verse 20. So he who had received the five talents came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I have gained five more talents besides them. Each servant had the opportunity to do whatever they wanted with the talents. Go ahead, here it is. This, this, is what, this is what I'm giving you in your lifetime. Do whatever you want with it. The first servant had received five talents. He came and said, Master, I took what you gave me and I made more of it. I invested it wisely. I have a profit. I've added five more. I've doubled it. And the master responded there in verse 21. His Lord said to him, well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. This answer, I like it because it tells us something. It tells us what the master is looking for. What did he call him? Good and faithful servant. The master is looking for goodness and faithfulness in his servants. You see, it wasn't about the amount of return. It wasn't the fact that he doubled it. He was looking for goodness and faithfulness. And because he found goodness and faithfulness, that's how he complimented him. Well done, good and faithful. He didn't say good and financially wise servant. Congratulations, you doubled. He said good and faithful servant. You were found good and you were found faithful. He was found both of these things, and therefore I will make you a ruler over many things. And next he said, come on, enter into the joy of your Lord. In other words, I'm pleased with you. Welcome back. I'm back. The master is, you're back in the presence of the master. You did well while you were away from me. You took what I gave you. You traded it. You consistently worked with it. You used it well. It's very pleasing for me to come back and find you faithful and good. The next servant... He had two talents. He traded it for four. He made, it, made four out of it. He also was found faithful and good. Look at verse 22. He also, who had received two talents, came and said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I have gained two more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. 
You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. The same response. Same, the same. He only had two, but he made two more. The first one had five. He made five more. It wasn't about the number. It was about the good and faithfulness. Good and faithfulness. The word for good. Because when I look at this, I'm like, this is me. I want to be good and faithful. I want to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. So I got what does it mean to be good? What, 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 is, what, what does the word for good mean? And it means this, pertaining to having the proper characteristics or performing the expected function in a fully satisfactory way. What does that mean? It's fulfilling God's call that he has designed you for. It's fulfilling your role as a servant. That is good. I, I, you doing what God has called you to do is good. Now for me, at this point, it's being a pastor. It's, be, it's, it's teaching God's word. For you, it might be being a plumber or being a wife or a mom or it's all of these. And it's not just one thing. It's many things that he's called us to do and we need to be found good in them. And then I like the next one, faithful. The word faithful, it simply means you can be trusted. You can be trusted. Trustworthy, dependable, reliable. Can you be trusted with the master's possessions? Are you found faithful? He's given us all everything we have. The time clock that you have ticking down for the rest of your life has been given to him will you be found faithful with your time will you be found faithful with your money will you be found faithful with the things that you're good at the gifts that you have that maybe other people don't have will you be found faithful with the things that he's given you can he trust you with his things have you come to the realization that truly everything you have belongs to him really it is his Everything, from finances to your job. Do, I mean, do, do all of us realize that you could get sick tomorrow and lose your job because you can't think anymore? Or you, you could invest in everything that you think is secure and eventually it could be all gone. It could be wiped out. With one bad day at the stock market, things, people can lose billions of dollars in one, in one bad moment, in one bad day. Do we realize that it really is his? No, no, I'm a self-made man. No, you're not. Who gave you the brain with the money to buy that stuff, to, to, under, to make that. Who, who, well, no, I, I've studied hard. Who gave you the ability to understand what it is that you're... Well, I understand people, not things no one else understands. Who gave you that ability? Who created you with that mind to think that way? That, that's something that you're a steward of. That's something that he's given you. Will you be found faithful? Can he trust you with his things? Because all that we really have is his, isn't it? Think about that. Everything that you have belongs to him. No, it's my car. I bought it. That car could burn up tomorrow. It, it could be on fire right now in the parking lot. <sighs> Somebody go look. No. <laughs> That'd be pretty impressive, wouldn't it? No, <laughs> as long as it's not my car. <laughs> We've got to come to the realization that everything we have belongs to him. And we need to see ourselves as stewards of his stuff. It doesn't mean you can't buy things and enjoy things, and, but ask yourself, am I being a good steward of what he's given me? And, and some people, they all, all of a sudden they think, well, that means I've got to live you know, poor. And I, it, it means you have to live the way he's called you to live. It means you have to live in the economy that he's called you to live in. It means it, it, you know, if, if he calls you to live somewhere in, in Africa, you're going to probably have to live like the people you're around. It's, it's, it, can I be found faithful what he's given to me? Do I realize everything belongs to him? Both servants were found good and they were found faithful. As a result, they were told, enter into the joy of your Lord and they were given much. But there was a third servant. 
Look what his story is there in verse 24. Then he who had received one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. And I was afraid and went and I hid your talents in the ground. Look, there you have what is yours. Every answer that begins with excuses never turns out very well. Lord, I knew you were a hard man. The idea of reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered indicates the servant understood the power of the master. Some would even say he understood the omniscience of the master. No ordinary person can gather and reap where they have not sown seed. So chalked full of excuses, he says, I hid it. I dug a hole in the backyard. I buried it. I didn't lose it, didn't increase it. What'd you do with it? I did nothing with it. Here it is. Here's what you gave me. I'm giving it back to you. Same way you gave it to me. Only it's been in this mayonnaise jar for the last however long he's been gone. Doesn't tell us how long the master was gone. Here it is. It's just what I gave back to you. Now, how do you think the master's going to respond to that? Look at verse 26. But his, his Lord answered and said to him, You wicked and lazy servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. So you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I would have received back my own with interest. So take the talent, so he took the ta- so take the talent from him and give it to him who has 10 talents. In other words, why didn't you just deposit in the bank? If you thought, and it's not saying that the master is this way, but if you thought that I was really that hard of a man. If you really thought that, why didn't you at least put it in the bank and give me the interest off of it? Notice, instead of being good and faithful, how was this servant described? Wicked and lazy. Wicked and lazy. This is still a servant of the master. Think about that. Not an unbeliever, it's a servant of the master he's talking about here. Wicked and lazy who disregarded the things he had been given to steward over. He took them and he buried them. He did nothing with them. We have a tendency to think laziness is a personality or a character weakness. But Jesus said laziness is what drove this slave. This is, this is what it was all about. He was lazy. Laziness is a sin. It is a sin. It is not just a personality flaw. It's not a character flaw that we just skip over. It's a sin that must be repented of. This servant was described as wicked. We know what wicked means. But he also describes him as lazy, which means you were too lazy to even go lose my money. You didn't even try. You just sat on the couch and played video games all day or whatever he did back then. (laughs) Did nothing with what I gave you. I gave you a talent. I gave you something of mine. I put some of what was mine into your life and you did nothing with it. Wicked and lazy servants. The slave, this slave, erroneous estimation of his master's character was sufficient proof that he had really no knowledge of his master at all. He didn't really know who the master was. One commentator said this, he said, This slave represents the professing Christian whose limited knowledge of God leads him to conclude that he is distant, uncaring, unjust, and undependable. 
Instead of judging themselves in light of God's inerrant word, such people judge God in light of their own perverted perceptions. They not only justify themselves, but they do it at God's expense. Wow. Seriously. The master took the talent from him and he gave it to the one who had ten. As Christians, if we are to live with the expectation of the return of Christ, what does it look like? What should we be doing? You should be busy about the Father's work. You should be taking the things that he has given you, whatever greatness or whatever minor things they are, and you should be using them in service to him. And please don't think that that means that that has to happen in church every Sunday, and that's the only place it happens. It means your life is focused around pleasing your master. You can only serve one master. I think it's interesting he uses the talent, which is a measure of wealth, because if you show me where somebody's wealth is going, you can very quickly tell where their heart is. What is important to them? Where's their pocketbook? Where's their money being poured out to? You can very quickly find out what is important to some people. It's, it's not hard to do. Now, so what do we do? We're supposed to be using our talents for God. So I know he's coming quickly. We should sell everything and just wait for him. We'll walk around all day looking up in the air. Wait, is, is today the day that he's coming on the clouds? No, that's not. What, what is he telling you to do? You're supposed to be taking what he's given you and using it until he comes back. We don't, in other words, even if you knew he was coming next month, Next month, he's showing up on this date at this time. What should you do between now and next month? Just keep serving him the way you're serving him. No, I'm going to sell everything and wait. No, just keep doing what he's called you to do. Continue the process that he started in your life. You keep moving forward. You don't need to change anything. Those are the ones that are ready. We're prepared. Why? Because we're busy about the Father's work while we're waiting on his return. We're expecting him to come back at any time, but we're just continuing doing what he's called us to do. That means go to work every day, the job he's given you. That means, you know, serve and, and minister to the family he's given you. Volunteer in the church that he's put you. Just keep serving him in whatever capacity you are. You don't need to go find anything new to do. Just continually, faithfully, until he comes. Isn't that kind of cool? We don't have a whole lot to do. Just keep doing what you're doing if you're doing what he's told you to do. Well, what if I'm not doing what he's told you to do? You need to change. You need to start doing what he told you to do. You need to find out, what am I supposed to be doing? I'm supposed to be faithfully serving him. Nothing should really change. Just keep serving the master until he returns. Then you'll be a faithful servant. Then you'll be a prepared bridesmaid. Then you'll be ready for his return. It's just that simple. Don't, don't overcomplicate it. Now, in verse 31, he goes to the judgment of the nations. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. He will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. Let me first ask you, when is this judgment taking place? Looking at this passage of scripture, when is it happening? The scripture says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory. When does that happen? That happens at the second coming. Well, when does the second coming happen? After the tribulation, before the millennial reign. Remember, we're going to have a rapture of the church. There's going to be a short period of time where I believe an antichrist will rise to power. We'll have a seven-year period of tribulation. Christ comes back to earth to rule and reign on earth for a thousand years. And then after the end of that thousand years, Satan's released one more time to deceive everyone. So he will take many with him. Then he will eventually be cast into the lake of fire permanently. And the earth will be recreated to a new heaven and a new Jerusalem. That's sort of the time plan. This is taking place, I believe, at the 
end of the tribulation at the beginning of the millennial reign. Now, not everybody agrees on that. I got to tell you, some Bible scholars suggest this takes place. This is happening at the white throne judgment described in Revelation chapter 19. And I can certainly understand their point, and I, and I see why they come to that conclusion. I'm okay with that. Others, though, including myself, believes it happens at the end of the tribulation because it talks about the glorious return of Jesus Christ. I think it's happening before the millennial reign, at the beginning of the millennial reign, and here's why. At the end of the tribulation period, there'll be lots of people living on the earth. We know that about a third to a quarter of the population will be destroyed through the book of Revelation. So if you just do the simple math and say there's six million, I know there's a little more, but there's six million on the earth. That means there's a quarter or a third of them are destroyed. That's somewhere down around two million, or, or six billion, sorry, two billion people that are going to be gone, but you still have roughly four billion left. That's a big number to lose, but also a big number to be left behind. What happens to them? Do they all just continue into the millennial reign? No, I believe this is where that judgment will take place. I believe the sheeps and the goats will be separated. I believe that the, those that are believers, followers of Jesus Christ, that will include Jews and Gentiles, will be on one side. They're the sheep. I believe those that don't believe in Jesus Christ, that have come through the millennial reign, they're not following Christ. That is referring to the goats. And I remind you, not everybody agrees with me on that, and I'm okay with that. I understand the different sides, but this is just what makes sense to me. There will be people, Jewish people, Christians, and non-believers who survive this tribulation period. It seems to me that when Christ comes to earth for a second coming, that those surviving will be divided into these two groups and they'll be judged. How are they judged? On how they treated the brothers of the Lord, how they treated the brethren. Listen to verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And he's going to tell the sheep their reward and what they've done. Look at verse 37. And the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? Verse 40 says, and the king will answer and say to them, assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, my brothers, you did it to me. The Lord listed six areas of need, being hungry, thirsty, a stranger, naked, sick, and in prison. The kingdom is for those who have ministered to such needs in the lives of God's people. That'll be the nation of Israel and those who believe because those good deeds are evidence of their true and living faith. Notice the word brethren there. You did these things when you did them to my brothers. My brethren. Certainly he's referring to the Christians and the Jews, but he's also referring to those in need. Those people that are in need. But notice what he says to the other side there in verse 41. And he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me. You cursed into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was stranger. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in. Naked, you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, you did not visit me. Then they will also answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick in prison? Did not minister to you? And he will answer them, saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to the least of these, you 
did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. It seems to me Jesus Christ will separate believers from unbelievers when he returns to establish his millennial kingdom. As I said, the end of the tribulation will have people that are alive. He will put the believing sheep on his right, the place of favor and blessing. The unbelieving goats he will put on the left, the place of disfavor or rejection. The sheep will be the believers who have survived the tribulation. They will be ushered into the millennial reign. The goats will be those people who survived the tribulation also, but they do not believe in Christ. Now, some people have sought to take this area of Scripture and make salvation works-based. They say salvation, if you want to be a sheep, it's all about your works. Therefore, you have to do these six things. They've tried to make it a works-based salvation based on this passage of Scripture. Remember, this is taking place after the tribulation. Jesus is referring to how his brothers were treated. These types of work are simply evidence of our salvation. They're not the requirement for our salvation. In other words, you don't have to try. Your your salvation should produce good works in you because you're saved. You don't have to produce these works for yourself. They didn't even realize when they were doing them. It was just happening. When did we do these things? By the way, you treated everyone else. Well, how do, I, the way that I treat everyone else is, is, is a picture of my salvation, is essentially what it's saying. You know, James says he'll show you his faith by his good works. The idea is that when I believe on Jesus Christ, it's going to change me. It's going to produce something in me that's going to naturally produce good works. I don't have to try to whip it up inside of me. I, I don't have to try to make it happen. It just happens. It's just, as you walk with the Lord over time, things are, the way that you see people are going to change. I don't have to think, all right, I've got to do something good for God today. So I'm going to go help someone. I'm going to go do this. No, it just, it just happens. He brings people across your path. You minister to them as he brings them for as long as you have them. It's just something that works inside of you very naturally yet supernatural. It's not a, he's not laying out a thing saying, if you want to be saved, you have to do these things. He's laying out a thing saying, you're already saved, you will be doing these things. You don't have to go, well, I'm not doing enough of this one. No, if you're faithfully waiting on the master and you're the servant doing what he's called you to do, you don't need to worry about anything else. It's going to happen. It all happens naturally. You don't have to create your own salvation. You just have to walk in it. You just have to walk with him. Lord, what do you want me to do today? Whatever I bring across your path, this is what I want you to do. I want you to remain flexible. I want you to minister to the people I bring. And he might bring all kinds of people across your path. Or he might not bring anybody across your path. Maybe you're not ready to minister to people. He's afraid what you might say to him. Uh, maybe you have a lot of good things and wisdom and you're going to share Christ. He'll bring lots of people across. You ever notice the evangelists are always evangelizing? Other people who are kind of afraid to evangelize, well, I don't ever know. I don't want to get to talk to like that. Well, you don't know what to say. The Lord's not, if you don't know what to say, the Lord's not going to bring people across your path that you can evangelize to because you might ruin it. <laughs> not really. Their salvation doesn't depend upon you. It depends upon them. But you get the idea here. This is not a a works-based thing. He's not saying you have to do these things. He's saying these are going to be a result of what's already happening in your life. These types of works are the evidence of our salvation, not the foundation of our salvation. Those who are truly saved just naturally produce these good works. I think it's interesting that Jesus closes out his Olivet Discourse here with a sermon based on his second coming, but also he offers a severe and sobering warning of the coming judgment. He, this, is, this is no joke. Which, 
This is going to, in the coming days, mankind would be divided into two groups, sheep and goats. The sheep going on to eternal life, the goats going on to eternal hell. Not only will it determine the ultimate eternal destinies of everyone living at the end of the tribulation, but it's going to also determine who's going to enter the millennial kingdom and who's not. Who's going to go on? Only those who belong to the king, believers who have been born into God's spiritual family and have been made citizens of his spiritual kingdom will enter his glorious kingdom. When looking at chapters 24 and chapters 25, consider that he has made it clear that he's coming back. His return is imminent. I think the overwhelming, looming questions that we need to look at this for ourselves is not so much get caught up on all the details. The question that you have to answer for yourself is, are you going to be found a faithful servant? Are you ready? Or will you be found an unfaithful servant and be unprepared? Will you be prepared for his return? Prepared and I'm just, I've got everything, I'm just waiting. If you're sleeping, boom, you awake, you're ready to go. I don't, I don't have to, wait a minute, I've got to get my life straight. I've got to get my life in order. I've got to get this taken care of. i got to get that taken No, I'm ready. Whenever he comes back, I'm here. I've been, I'm faithfully walking with the Lord daily. I'm not, oh, wait a minute, I, I've got a whole bunch of sin. I, I said a bunch of stuff. I did a bunch. I've got to get some stuff straightened out. I'm not ready for that yet. Or will you be found faithful? Will you be found prepared, waiting on the Lord, waiting on his return? And that means you're just simply doing what he's called you to do. You're just persevering in the things that he's put in your path. The faithful and prepared will be utilizing the talents that God has given them. Finances, yes, but also the other abilities that God has given them in the way that he's called you to. That's what faithful looks like. Think about it this way. If you had a servant, how would you describe a faithful servant? One who's trustworthy, one who's doing what I asked them to do. As simple as that. You, don't, you didn't ask them to go invest and, and run off and build, build a house. I just asked you to do to do this here today. I, well, I want to go do this. No, no, that, that's not a faithful servant. A faithful servant says, I'm just going to do what God calls me. I'm going to do what my master calls me to do. Nothing more, nothing less. I'm just going to walk faithfully. I'm trustworthy. I can be trusted. I'm good. I'm ready. I'm just, just walking in what he called me to do. He'll be prepared. He'll be utilizing the talents, the finances, the abilities, and the time while simply waiting on the return of the Lord. Don't get too caught up into it. And it's fun to, you know, if you want to go back afterwards and talk about the different points of view, I like doing it, I, I, I can do it with you, it's fun. But, don't, but look at the big picture. You got faithful, unfaithful. You got prepared, you got unprepared. You got those that are using the talents, those that aren't. And what you have is Jesus is coming back, how are you going to be found? That's the simplicity of it. it does, it's no more complicated than that. How are you going to be found? It, it, it's, it's that easy. How will the Lord find you when he returns? Will you be like the unfaithful servant who's drinking and in the world and doing all those things? Or will you be like the faithful servant? Will you be like the unprepared bridesmaid? Well, I, 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 think, I'm, I think I'm okay with the Lord. I'm good. Lord, I went to church. Well, hold on. I've got to get this straightened out. Sorry, you missed it. Now you're off into the, perhaps the tribulation period. I think as Christians, we need to constantly be checking ourselves in that. Because we live in a world that's, bought, that's trying to pull you away from the things of God. We live in a world that wants to draw you away, everything spiritual. They want to tell you all kinds of things. They want to get you away from following the Lord and get you to following some other thing. They want to, they want to make a hobby your God. They want, to, they want to do everything to try to get God off of the throne in your life. And what became a good thing at one time all of a sudden became something you're worshiping. 
We need to keep that in perspective. It's always good to ask yourself that question. Am I prepared for his return? If not, what do I need to do to get prepared? Don't lay a guilt trip on yourself. Am I doing what he's called me to do? If you are, great. Worship, praise, you're faithful. If you're not, get doing it. Repent and get doing it. Don't just bury your talents in the backyard. Let use the things that God has given you in the way that he directs you to use them to bring blessing to him. Remember, it was good and faithful and evil and lazy. I think as Christians, the thing that perhaps is, gets us the most is laziness, especially in our country. It's easy to become lazy. It's easy to come back and say, oh, I'm lazy. There is no retirement in the Bible. I hate to tell you that. It's not, it doesn't exist. You don't find it. Well, I want to retire. There, it, I'm not saying you can't leave your work and do something else. I'm not saying that you have to work until you're, the day you drop dead. We'll all slow down as we get older. But there is no picture in the Bible that says, I kick back with my feet up in the air and say, I am done. A faithful servant serves in whatever capacity he's called to the day that he meets his master, till the day you meet the Lord face to face. Whatever that looks like in your life. And you can't copy someone else. It's got to be between you and him. Will you be found faithful? Let's pray. Father, may we all be found faithful. Lord, if we're not, if there's an area of our life that eh, we're not faithful in, may we make the decision, may we take the action to correct it. May we come into alignment with you and with your word. May we walk faithfully, doing all that you've called us to do. Nothing more, nothing less. For when you tell us to rest, we should rest. When you tell us to work, we should work. When you tell us to do this or do that, may we respond faithfully, Lord. And may you help us discern your word from the many lies of the enemy, your truths. Just keep us, Lord. We look forward to the day that we see you face to face. May we be ready for your return. For we know and we believe that you're coming back. In Jesus' name, amen.